The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Kate Soper. We talked about her new book, Post-Growth Living, For an Alternative Hedonism. We chatted about why a transition to a sustainable post-growth economy need not mean privation and a reduction of pleasure, but instead an increase in human flourishing. We also talked about why consumerism should be seen neither as an expression of sovereign public choice or as mere surrender to the manipulations of the advertising industry. And finally, we discussed Kate's concept of avant-garde nostalgia. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, The Political Economy of Saving the Planet. A new work from Noam Chomsky and Robert Pollin, the book maps out the catastrophic consequences of unchecked climate change and presents a realistic blueprint for change, the Green New Deal. Humanity must stop burning fossil fuels within the next 30 years and do so in a way that improves living standards and opportunities for working people. This is the goal of the Green New Deal and as the authors make clear, it is entirely feasible. Climate change is an emergency that cannot be ignored. This book shows how it can be overcome both politically and economically. Climate Change and the Global Green New Deal is out now from Verso Books and part of their September book club reading. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. And now to today's interview. Kate Soper teaches philosophy and cultural theory at the University of North London. Her previous works include On Human Needs, What is Nature, Culture, Politics and the Non-Human and Troubled Pleasures. Apologies for the less than brilliant sound quality of today's recording. Unfortunately, we had some technical glitches on the day we recorded, but I hope you'll stick with it. So in the book, you make the fairly uncontroversial point that a a transition to a sustainable economy that would allow us to avoid or or mitigate the worst possible outcomes of the climate crisis would require a radical transformation of the way we produce and consume. But you argue that this transformation needn't be conceived solely in terms of of sacrifice and privation, and that a transition to a greener economy could actually facilitate an increase in in pleasure and and human flourishing as part of what you call alternative hedonism. Could you explain what alternative hedonism means to you and, and also what it's an alternative to? Yes, fine. I think this is where my own approach is probably the most distinctive. I mean, I obviously agree with other environmentalists who accept that we need to change our ways and to guarantee long-term survival. And I accept for them also that much greater equality is the primary condition of any move to a more sustainable global order. But where I think my approach is more distinctive is in, firstly, that I I'm trying to spell out in more detail the alternative politics of prosperity that we need to pursue. And above all, in challenging 
what's different, I think, is the challenge I deliver to the currently very entrenched view of affluent consumption as essential to well-being. In other words, what I'm contesting with alternative hedonism is the idealization of the consumerist lifestyle as the model of the good life. What I'm emphasizing in contrast is the downsides, even in some cases, I would argue, dystopian aspect of current ways of living. The, I'm talking here about the domination of the work and spend spiral, the insecurity, often lifelong, you know, that, that creates the ill health and stress of that way of living and time scarcity, which goes along with it. Loss of community, the excessive waste it produce, produces, which is often quite toxic as well. Traffic congestion and pollution, the commercialization of children, all these kinds of aspects I'm suggesting are, they're, they're quite negative spin-offs, if you like, from the consumerist lifestyle. And in, in noting these as problematizing the, the consumer culture of the current order, I'm also now, you know, I'm also pointing to existing indices of disaffection. Yeah, you, you describe this kind of emergent structure of feeling. There is, as it were, yeah, I mean, I use that concept of Raymond Williams's structure of feeling. And there, in other words, there's a level of emerging support, which is not fully articulated or even necessarily on the part of most people fully understood as such. But there is this sort of what what's emerging here is a sense of disenchantment with consumer culture, which can then provide the basis, a sort of legitimation for the kinds of claims I'm making, that there is a, a desire for an alternative here, that this has not sufficiently been emphasised in the existing literature on climate change and the need for an alternative way of living. And it's also your view that this commitment to orthodox notions of hedonism centred around private consumption is not something confined to the right and to the centre, or even just the soft left, but also the radical left and, and, and Marxist currents as well. Is that right? Well, I don't want to be too blanket in condemnation of the left here. I think there's probably a spectrum of positions, but I have felt that well, two things really about the left. One that there's quite a reluctance to really address consumption. I mean, the focus of historical materialism has been very much on, you know, the area of production, the mode of production. And that of consumption tends to get treated as if it was simply conditioned by and, and the outcome of the mode of production and the people on the whole are sort of, you know, in a sense, brainwashed into certain kinds of consumption habits. So I'm quite critical of that. But I also think that insofar as there have been, and there has been more of late, I would say, visions of an alternative to, you know, of a post-capitalist society, what would be the alternative? They, you know, they challenge, obviously, capitalist production. They insist on the, a radical shift in economic system, but they tend to want to stay with the more conventional order of consumption that has been generated by capitalism and to reproduce what this sort of notion of high standards of living, of abundant consumption and so on, that have gone together with capitalism and upon which it's been dependent. 
So it, it's in that sense that I'm I'm critical of the across-the-board nature of the ways of thinking about consumption and suggest that they're not very imaginative and not very willing to consider that the good life might not simply be a matter of managing by other means, as it were, beyond the capitalist order of economic production to create and continue with the consumer culture we already know. Why do you think there is that reluctance to take on the question of of consumption? Is it simply a question of an attachment to a form of Marxist politics which was historically based in an era where there wasn't such a a great degree of, of, of mass working class consumption? Possibly. I think the reluctance to take it on has been in part because there has been a sort of way of thinking about consumption as if it were the precipitate, in a way, of production. And therefore, it has not been seen as an area of agency of any kind. What I'm saying here is that the left has adopted, on the whole, a fairly patronising way of thinking, I would say, about alternative consumption, where it's suggested that there has been an unnecessarily luxurious or complex forms of consumption, we can go back to simpler ways of consuming in a socialist society. But the the claims they make don't necessarily have any basis in the actual experience of people themselves. So the needs and wants are imputed to the working class classically in Marxist thinking, in despite of any evidence for their actual existence. And then the argument is, oh, well, that's because they're just manipulated or brainwashed by capitalist consumer culture. But that whole picture is problematic. Firstly, as I say, it sort of claims a kind of expert knowledge over what people really need if they were not, as it were, caught up in capitalist culture. And then it's also claiming to... In a sense that there is no, that they are sort of duped by or manipulated by capitalist culture in a way that doesn't allow them any real agency over consumption. And I want to emphasize that it's a, it's a, it's a limited picture of the consumer here that has often been employed in that kind of Marxist thinking and that we need to recognize, particularly today, that consumers are much more savvy than this, that they're more reflexive in their thinking, that we're now seeing much larger group of people having doubts about the formation of consumer culture and what it delivers. Yes, because I mean, in, in the book, you talk about a liberal approach to consumerism, which sees consumers as, as sort of sovereign, rational, making decisions in their own interests. And then, as you say, this position of, of a kind of unsophisticated leftism, which, which sees people simply as dupes. So would you be saying that even if we think about the extent to which we're all in various ways tied into quite conventional and orthodox forms of consumerism, nonetheless, those are still to some extent expression of, of rational desires. It, it may not be the best way of, of, of fulfilling those desires and you're suggesting alternatives to that. But nonetheless, it's not simply a case of being manipulated by advertising, say. I don't think the idea of people being wholly manipulated by advertising is a valid one or persuasive any longer. I mean, that's not to say it doesn't exercise advertisement and the monopoly, the total monopoly over ideas of pleasure and the good life that is exercised through advertising and consumer culture. I'm not saying that doesn't have any formative impact. Uh, It does, clearly. But I also think that 
it's not a, a blanket manipulation. And if we see it in that way, it's very difficult to see how you would actually begin to theorize any possibility of a shift or a change in, in outlook. So what I want to argue is, uh, you know, I want to present a slightly more complex picture of the consumer here who is both formed to a degree including all of us, are formed to a degree by consumer culture and what it puts on offer, but not exclusively so. And that there is the possibility of an exercise of agency, as you see emerging now in disaffection with consumerism, but also in the choices for more ethical and sustainable ways of uh, meeting needs and so on. It's around the issue of agency also that I think we need to correct some of the older ways of thinking about this. And see and see consumption as a as a domain for the exercise of agency, and not simply think of consumers as passive victims of it, as it were. And so, it's a place where sort of civic feelings could be developed more. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, I mean, in some ways, I think it hasn't been helped by many decades now, in which we have been invited to think of ourselves as it's as essentially consumers, you know, in which the, the whole idea of the, the citizen has kind of dropped out of the picture. And, you know, this has been done both through the notion of us as being offered more empowerment or choice at the level of services where we have been invited to think of ourselves even in our consumption of welfare services as in some sense consumers rather than citizens. But also it suited the capitalist market very well to have us positioned much more as consumers primarily and as sovereign in our agency as consumers. Whereas I think that, you know, it makes, it's important to try to challenge that picture and to be begin to acknowledge that there are consumers and probably actually increasing numbers of them now who are also see consumption as the exercise of a certain kinds of Republican spirit. Those are the people who are thinking about the impact of their consumption, not only on the environment, but also on the exploitation of other people who are being caught up in their production and peripheral economies and so on. So there's much more engagement with these kinds of aspects of consumption as themselves, in some sense, forming an aspect of the exercise of citizenship. Just going back to the reasons that the left tends to shy away from talking about consumption, you say in the book that we are told of capitalism's arrogance, its desires and its choices and so on, along with a relative abstraction from the everyday life of ordinary people, either in their role as consumers or in their electoral support for the system. And I would guess that some people would shy away from talking about the extent to which people are complicit in the reproduction of capitalism because it may seem to feed into a moralistic liberal politics that prioritises personal consumption habits over decisions regarding production and investment, which are, after all, taken by a tiny fraction of the population. So what would you say to those who might argue that you're perhaps ascribing too much blame to those who are least responsible for the reproduction of capitalism? Well, in a sense, I, I think my address to, to consumption has partly to do with the way in which it can exercise some leverage over the activities at the level of production. I think some critics have seen my argument as focused too much on the idea that individual consumption can change the world. I'm not arguing that. And in a sense, I'm not 
allocating blame either. What I'm trying to suggest, I'm trying to see where the pressure points might emerge in a contemporary culture such as Britain or, or any advanced affluent society today. What kinds of pressures can emerge here to bring about more solidarity for a move to a more radical economic order, one that could begin to to give priority to a green renaissance in a very serious way. And I, I'm looking at changes at the level of consumption and pressure from consumers as one possible way of actually creating a relay of pressures which could ultimately issue in a mandate of an electoral kind for an alternative economic order. So in a way, the emphasis on consumption in the book is linked to my trying to rethink transitional politics and how we might possibly build an alternative politics of prosperity or build the cultural revolution behind the will to introduce an alternative politics of prosperity. And there, I think, the power that people exercise as consumers should not be ignored. And I think corporate capitalism is very aware that actually, ultimately, they are dependent for their continued accumulation on the readiness of people to settle for their current lifestyles and to consume in their current ways. So, in a sense, I'm trying to... I'm not saying it's the whole picture, but I am suggesting that there is a power that could be seized here and developed and could help to enlarge our sense of an alternative politics of prosperity. Thinking practically about that leverage point, if we think about the lockdown, for instance, that, that seems to very much illustrate your point, the, the extent to which consumers do have power in the system, because clearly the reduction in consumption has been hugely damaging to the economy. And we see sort of the, the desperation on parts of governments and corporations to return to normal, quote unquote, so the whole business of capital accumulation can continue. But at the same time, it's a funny sort of, of weapon which also rebounds on the people wielding it because we're all dependent to some extent upon capital accumulation because we're dependent on, on jobs and we're dependent on our wages. So how can that weapon be effectively wielded, do you think, in a way which won't hurt ordinary people? Well, I, I think, I mean, clearly, the, you know, the pandemic is not going to, as it were, help us to green the economy in that sense. I mean, for all the reasons you've just given. I think if we could build enough of a extensive cultural politics around the need for an alternative order of prosperity based on a, a different kind of economic system, that would have to be provided with political encouragement and political representation in the form of a, a party or party alliance of some kind, which would then be the main vehicle, I think, for if it adopted that position, would then be in a position to to seek for you know, an election for power and to have a mandate for various shifts of a much more radical kind than we've hitherto seen. 
And would that, in your view, necessarily be as part of a transition to a post-capitalist economy? Because that kind of reduction in consumption would have to mean moving to a situation where GDP growth couldn't be the the measure of, of a good society. Ultimately, yes, I think that that would be the case. But I think it's it's a long and difficult and quite rocky journey. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we get there in one you know one leap. I think what would be good is if we had a formation, an alliance of the Green Party and the Labour Party, who who knows quite what form it would take. But if we had a formation that did adopt what I'm calling an alternative politics of prosperity outlook and said to people, we are going to rethink the commitment to relentless growth as part of that, and that will involve shifting from what I've called a a means-contesting way of doing politics to an ends-debating way of doing politics. In other words, most of the political parties, the main political parties, contend over the best means of delivering an agreed set of goods, living standards as currently defined, economic growth, full employment, and so on, right? If we had a more ends-debating political formation it would you know it would put to the people why what is the purpose of all this endless growth and relentless productivity which is in any case environmentally unsustainable in the long term how else shall we organize but it, it would need that kind of representation and support i mean i don't think we could go for, forward without it and in the long term i think it would commit, as you suggest, to moving to a a post-growth, less GDP-driven economic order. But I I mean, ideally, that would be done together with other nations moving in the same direction. I mean, it's going to be very difficult for this to be achieved simply in in one country only, I think. You make the point that the oversized carbon footprint of the rich countries of the North means that there can be no generalisation of those economic conditions at a global level. And to to some people, including to, to some people in the global South, that might sound like a question of, of pulling up the ladder, abandoning the global South to relatively higher levels of poverty and, and comparatively poor infrastructure. But you argue that we really need to think differently about which the more advanced economies actually are, if we think about the question of of sustainability. So could you talk a little bit about that and and how you see the global south in any transition to a a greener economy? This is really probably one of the more controversial aspects of my argument, I suppose. But I am wanting to argue that we need to rethink prosperity in part because the the model that has been used of development and the good life and been exported, if you like, in a sort of neo-colonial set of moves, it's not sustainable. If every if we were to try to repeat the American way of life elsewhere, for example, it would need and America itself would need three three planets if it were to carry on indefinitely. So this is not a sustainable model for thinking about development elsewhere. And indeed, I, you know, I don't think it's just, I don't think in a way that this is a terribly exceptional argument. I think a lot of people working in development studies would agree that 
that this needs to be rethought and that in a way it's a form of colonialism itself to impose that set of ideas about good life and well-being. Yeah, to say whether you're a worthy state or not depending on your level of, of GDP or whatever. Yeah, it's also the case, I think, that there are downsides to it. I mean, what we are sometimes, as it were, suggesting that this is a, an uncomplicatedly healthy and pleasurable way of living, but in, in many respects, it actually turns out to be not the case. I mean, you know, that the, the affluent lifestyle is also the cause of a great deal of ill health, of stress, obesity, diabetes. These are not areas that I know a great deal about, but I, but I think, you know, we can't project this idea the affluent lifestyle as if it were uncomplicatedly a healthy and and happy one for people and in that sense i think we have to acknowledge that so-called underdeveloped countries have in certain respects had more sustainable ways of living until neocolonialism and the expansion of the world market came to disturb and disrupt their existing patterns and rhythms of work and of reproduction and now that that's happened, of course, it's very much harder to actually think through how less developed nations would actually manage to flourish. But part of my argument is certainly that we need to acknowledge not only that we need greater justice and equality within the nation state, but also globally. And that, again, as a condition of allowing for a sustainable way of living and and that means allowing in the long term indefinitely a decent way of living for all then you know that's that's going to be the first condition of of uh, allowing people to return to some other ways of living that are not exploited in the ways that they are currently by the global economic system i mean it's a complicated set of issues because i don't want to say that the western lifestyle and affluence has not gone together with progress in many areas, particularly, I think, in terms of gender relations and sexuality and, and freedoms of various kinds. That has to be acknowledged. But there are also downsides here. Uh, and everybody, everybody, in a way, needs to be involved in the conversation around what would be the alternative politics of prosperity here, and given some sort of local choice matter as well, obviously. You have this very interesting example in the book about considering the the virtues of different kinds of, of societies, both today and, and historically, and the way in which certain kinds of, not just practices that are more sustainable at, at an economic level, but even at the level of values and, and spirituality, which is a, is a term I think a lot of leftists get a bit embarrassed about and don't really like to think about. But, but, but you talk about that and you talk about it in terms of Ireland and its position as the underdeveloped periphery of Britain. So could you talk a little bit about Ireland and, and how it was conceived by some Irish nationalists and and Irish writers as the repudiation of the bourgeois values of Britain? Well, I mean, this was a sort of dominant idea of, of certain politicians, particularly Eamon de Valera, I suppose. Uh, but I think it's a commonly thought that, you know, by quite a lot of cultural commentators, that Ireland had this reputation as a, a more spiritual place in some ways that had eschewed the materialistic and commercial values of the mainland Britain as its colonizer and that 
nationalism of a certain kind was driven by a sense that this was the particular spirit of Ireland and what would be put in contention against the, the dominance of the Malam colonising forces. Of course, that itself was contested by other writers in Ireland who who wanted to suggest that thinking of Ireland in that kind of way was actually lending itself in some ways to the ideologies of the coloniser itself and that Ireland was... There was a great deal more to Ireland than that form of spirituality. And again, of course, it was associated for many with forms of religious bigotry and very dubious gender politics as well. So, you know, it was contested as much as it was endorsed, if you see what I mean, that sort of way of thinking about Ireland. But I, in the book, I kind of use it a bit as a, a I mean, obviously, it's, it's already been superseded by the Celtic Tiger and its aftermath and everything anyway. So it's no longer applicable. Yeah, well, Irish GDP is higher than British GDP, right? So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I use it. I mean, Ireland didn't go on that alternative development. Perhaps it was never going to be able to. And if it had, it would have been, from my point of view, retrograde in certain kinds of ways, particularly around gender and around Catholicism. So, you see, I mean, it's an interesting example, but it's interesting in part because what, you know, I was trying to suggest that if we didn't have quite so chronocentric a way of thinking about the future and we could actually begin to think of nations as as more prosperous, even though not as economically advanced, provided, of course, that that they had managed to to transform their gender politics and their more oppressive and exploitative social relations. Do you see what I mean? So that, I mean, I'm contesting through these kinds of examples the idea that that progress of a of a of a kind on on those fronts can only come through endless economic expansion. And I think we need to begin to have a picture, a more complex picture of a prosperity that is not necessarily driven by technology and economic expansion but reap the benefits of those forms of expansion without being committed to endless economic growth. And I was sort of using the example of Ireland as a a way into thinking through some of those ideas. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.